Part two, chapter twenty three of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, chapter twenty three. On a piece of ice. A piece of ice, a jagged, triangular strip of ice, measuring one hundred feet at its base, and scarcely five hundred in its greatest extent. And on it twenty-one human beings, some hundred furred animals, a few dogs, and a large bear, which was at this moment crouching at the very edge. Yes, all the luckless colonists were there. Not one had yet been swallowed up. The last rupture had occurred when they were all in the shed. Thus far fate had spared them, probably that they might all perish together. A silent, sleepless night ensued. No one spoke or moved. For the slightest shake or blow might suffice to break the ice. No one would touch the salt meat served round by Mrs. Joliffe. What would be the good of eating? Nearly every one remained in the open air, feeling that it would be better to be drowned in the open sea than in a narrow wooden shed. The next day, June fifth, the sun shone brightly down upon the heads of the doomed band of wanderers. All were still silent and seemed anxious to avoid each other. Many gazed with troubled, anxious eyes at the perfect circle of the horizon, of which the miserable little strip of ice formed the centre. But the sea was absolutely deserted. Not a sail, not an ice floe, not an islet. Their own piece of ice was probably the very last floating on the Bering Sea. The temperature continued to rise. The wind had gone down. And a terrible calm had set in. A gentle swell heaved the surface of the sea, and the morsel of earth and ice, which was all that was left of Victoria Island, rose and sank without change of position, like a wreck. And what was it but a wreck? But a wreck, a piece of woodwork, a broken mast, or a few planks remain floating. They offer some resistance to the waves. They will not melt. But this piece of ice, this solidified water, must dissolve with the heat of the sun. This piece of ice had formed the thickest part of the island, and this will explain its having lasted so long. A layer of earth and plenty of vegetation covered it, and the base of ice must have been of considerable thickness. The long, bitter polar winters must have fed it with fresh ice, in countless centuries during which it was connected with the mainland. Even now, its mean height was five or six feet above the sea level, and its base was probably of about the same thickness. Although in these quiet waters it was not likely to be broken, it could not fail gradually to melt, and the rapid dissolution could actually be watched at the edges. For as the long waves licked the sides, piece after piece of ground, with its verdant covering, sank to rise no more. On this fifth June. A fall of this nature occurred at about one o'clock p.m. on the site of the shed itself, which was very near the edge of the ice. There was fortunately no one in it at the time, and all that was saved was a few planks, and two or three of the timbers of the roofs. Most of the cooking utensils and all the astronomical instruments were lost. The colonists were now obliged to take refuge on the highest part of the islet, where nothing protected them from the weather. But fortunately, a few tools had been left there, with the air pumps and the air vessel, which Hobson had employed for catching a little of the rainwater for drinking purposes. 
as he no longer dared to draw for a supply upon the ice, every atom of which was of value. At about four o'clock p.m., the soldier Calais, the same who had already given signs of insanity, came to Mrs. Barnett and said quietly, "'I am going to drown myself, ma'am.' "'What, Calais?' exclaimed the lady. "'I tell you, I am going to drown myself,' replied the soldier. "'I have thought the matter well over. There is no escape for us, and I prefer dying at once to waiting to be killed.' "'Calais!' said Mrs. Barnett, taking the man's hand and looking into his face, which was strangely composed. "'You will not do that.' "'Yes, I will, ma'am. And as you have always been very good to us all, I wanted to wish you good-bye. Good-bye, ma'am.' And Calais turned towards the sea. Mrs. Barnett, terrified at his manner, threw herself upon him and held him back. Her cries brought Hobson and Long to her assistance and they did all in their power to dissuade the unhappy man from carrying out his purpose. But he was not to be moved, and merely shook his head. His mind was evidently disordered, and it was useless to reason with him. It was a terrible moment, as his example might lead some of his comrades to commit suicide also. At all hazards, he must be prevented from doing as he threatened. "'Calais,' said Mrs. Barnett gently, with half a smile, "'We have always been very good friends, have we not?' "'Yes, ma'am,' replied Calais calmly. "'Well, Calais, if you like we will die together, but not to-day.' "'What, ma'am?' "'No, my brave fellow, I am not ready, but to-morrow, to-morrow if you like.' The soldier looked more fixedly than ever at the courageous woman, and seemed to hesitate an instant. Then he cast a glance of fierce longing at the sea, and passing his hand over his eyes, said, "'To-morrow.' and without another word he quietly turned away and went back to his comrades. "'Poor fellow,' murmured Mrs. Barnett, "'I have asked him to wait till to-morrow, and who can say whether we shall not all be drowned by that time?' Throughout that night Hobson remained motionless upon the beach, pondering whether there might not yet be some means to check the dissolution of the islet, if it might not yet be possible to preserve it until they came in sight of land of some sort.' Mrs. Barnett and Madge did not leave each other for an instant. Kalumaha crouched like a dog at the feet of her mistress, and tried to keep her warm. Mrs. McNabb, wrapped in a few furs, the remains of the rich stores of Fort Hope, had fallen into a kind of torpor, with her baby clasped in her arms. The stars shone with extraordinary brilliancy, and no sounds broke the stillness of the night but the rippling of the waves, and the splash of the pieces of ice as they fell into the sea. The colonists, stretched upon the ground in scattered groups, were as motionless as corpses on an abandoned wreck. Sometimes Sergeant Long rose and peered into the night mists, but seeing nothing, he resumed his horizontal position. The bear, looking like a great white snowball, cowered motionless at the very edge of the strip of ice. This night also passed away without any incident to modify the situation. The grey morning dawned in the east, and the sun rose and dispersed the shadows of the night. The lieutenant's first care, as soon as it was light, was to examine the piece of ice. Its perimeter was still more reduced, and, alas, its mean height above the sea-level had sensibly diminished. The waves, quiet as they were, 
washed over the greater part of it. The summit of the little hill alone was still beyond their reach. Long, too, saw the changes which had taken place during the night, and felt that all hope was gone. Mrs. Barnett joined Lieutenant Hobson and said to him, "'It will be to-day, then?' "'Yes, madam, and you will keep your promise to Calais.' "'Lieutenant Hobson,' said the lady solemnly, "'have we done all in our power?' "'We have, madam.' "'Then God's will be done.' One last attempt was, however, made during the day. A strong breeze set in from the offing, that is to say, a wind bearing to the south-east, the direction in which were situated the nearest of the Aleutian Islands. How far off no one could say, as without instruments the bearings of the island could not be taken. It was not likely to have drifted far, however, unless under the influence of the current, as it gave no hold to the wind. Still, it was just possible that they might be nearer land than they thought. If only a current, the direction of which it was impossible to ascertain, had taken them nearer to the much-longed-for Aleutian Islands, then, as the wind was bearing down upon those very islands, it might drive the strip of ice before it, if a sail of some kind could be concocted. The ice had still several hours to float, and in several hours the land might come in sight, or, if not the land, some coasting or fishing vessel. A forlorn hope, truly, but it suggested an idea to the lieutenant, which he resolved to carry out. Could not a sail be contrived on the island as on an ordinary raft? There could be no difficulty in that, and when Hobson suggested it to MacNab, he exclaimed, "'You are quite right, sir,' adding to his men, "'bring out all the canvas there is.' Everyone was quite revived by this plan. Slight as was the chance it afforded, and all lent a helping hand, even Calais, who had not yet reminded Mrs. Barnett of her promise. A beam, which had once formed part of the roof of the barracks, was sunk deep into the earth and sand of which the little hill was composed, and firmly fixed with ropes, arranged like shrouds and a stay. A sail, made of all the claws and coverlets still remaining, fastened onto a strong pole for a yard, was hoisted on the mast. This sail, or rather collection of sails, suitably set, swelled in the breeze, and by the wake it left it was evident that the strip of ice was rapidly moving towards the southeast. It was a success, and every one was cheered with newly awakened hope. They were no longer stationary, they were advancing, slowly it was true, but still they were advancing. The carpenter was particularly elated, all eagerly scanned the horizon, and had they been told that no land could be sighted, they would have refused to believe it. So it appeared, however, for the strip of ice floated along the waves for three hours in the centre of an absolutely circular and unbroken horizon. The poor colonists still hoped on. Towards three o'clock the lieutenant took the sergeant aside and said to him, we are advancing at the cost of the solidity and duration of our islet. What do you mean, sir? I mean that the ice is being rapidly fretted away as it moves along. Its speed is hastening its dissolution, and since we set sail, it has diminished one-third. Are you quite sure? Absolutely certain. The ice is longer and flatter. Look, the sea is not more than ten feet from the hill. 
It was true, and the result was what might naturally have been expected from the motion of the ice. Sergeant, resumed Hobson, do you think we ought to take down our sail? I think, replied Long, after a moment's reflection, that we should consult our comrades. We ought all to share the responsibility of a decision now. The lieutenant bent his head in assent, and the two returned to their old position on the little hill. Hobson put the case before the whole party. The speed we have given to the ice, he said, is causing it to wear away rapidly, and will perhaps hasten the inevitable catastrophe by a few hours. My friends, you must decide whether we shall still go on. Forwards! all cried with one voice. So it was decided, and, as it turned out, the decision was fraught with consequences of incalculable importance. At six o'clock p.m., Madge rose, and, pointing to a point on the southeast, cried, Land! Everyone started up as if struck by lightning. Land there was indeed, on the southeast, twelve miles from the island. More sail, more sail, shouted Hobson. He was understood, and fresh materials were hastily brought. On the shrouds, a sort of studding sail was rigged up of clothes, furs, everything in short, that could give hold to the wind. The speed increased as the wind freshened, but the ice was melting everywhere. It trembled beneath the feet of the anxious watchers, and might open at any moment. But they would not think of that. They were buoyed up with hope. Safety was at hand on the land they were rapidly nearing. They shouted, they made signals. They were in a delirium of excitement. At half-past seven the ice was much nearer the land, but it was visibly melting, and sinking rapidly. Water was gushing from it, and the waves were washing over it, sweeping off the terrified quadrupeds before the eyes of the colonists. Every instant they expected the whole mass to be engulfed, and it was necessary to lighten it like a sinking vessel. Every means was tried to check the dissolution. The earth and sand were carefully spread about, especially at the edges of the ice, to protect it from the direct influence of the sunbeams, and furs were laid here and there, as being bad conductors of heat. But it was of no avail. The lower portion of the ice began to crack, and several fissures opened in the surface. It was now but a question of moments. Night set in, and there was nothing left for the poor colonists to do, to quicken the speed of the islet. Some of them tried to paddle about on planks. The coast was still four miles to windward. It was a dark, gloomy night without any moon, and Hobson, whose heroic courage did not even now fail him, shouted, A signal, my friends, a signal! A pile was made of all the remaining combustibles, two or three planks and a beam. It was set fire to, and bright flames soon shot up. But the strip of ice continued to melt and sink. Presently the little hill alone remained above the water, and on it the despairing wretches, with a few animals left alive, huddled together, the bear growling fiercely. The water was still rising, and there was no sign that any one on land had seen the signal. In less than a quarter of an hour they must all be swallowed up. Could nothing be done to make the ice last longer? In three hours, three short hours, they might reach the land, which was now but three miles to windward. Oh! 
cried Hobson. If only I could stop the ice from melting. I would give my life to know how. Yes, I would give my life. There is one way, suddenly replied a voice. It was Thomas Black who spoke. The astronomer, who had not opened his lips for so long, and who had long since appeared dead to all that was going on. Yes, he continued, there is one way of checking the dissolution of the ice. There is one way of saving us all. All gathered eagerly round the speaker, and looked at him inquiringly. They thought he must have misheard what he had said. Well, asked Hobson, what way do you mean? To the pumps, replied Black simply. Was he mad? Did he take the ice for a sinking vessel, with ten feet of water in the hold? The air-pumps were at hand, together with the air-vessel, which Hobson had been using as a reservoir for drinking water. But of what use could they be? Could they harden the ice which was melting all over? "'He is mad!' exclaimed Long. "'To the pumps!' repeated the astronomer. "'Fill the reservoir with air!' "'Do as he tells you!' cried Mrs. Barnett. The pumps were attached to the reservoir, the cover of which was closed and bolted. The pumps were at once set to work. The air was condensed under the pressure of several atmospheres. Then Black, taking one of the leather pipes connected with the reservoir, and opening the cock, let the condensed air escape, walking round the ice, wherever it was melting. Everyone was astonished at the effect produced. Wherever the air was projected by the astronomer, the fissures filled up, and the surface refrozen. Hurrah! Hurrah! shouted all with one voice. It was tiring enough to work the pumps, but there were plenty of volunteers. The edges of the ice were again solidified, as if under the influence of intense cold. "'You have saved us, Mr. Black,' said Lieutenant Hobson. "'Nothing could be more natural,' replied the astronomer quietly. "'Nothing, in fact, could have been more natural, and the physical effort produced may be described as follows. There were two reasons for the relegation. First, under the pressure of the air, the water vaporized on the surface of the ice produced intense cold, and the compressed air, in expanding, abstracted the heat from the thawed surface, which immediately refroze. Wherever the ice was opening, the cold cemented the edges, so that it gradually regained its original solidity. This went on for several hours, and the colonists, buoyed up by hope, toiled on with unwearying zeal. They were nearing the coast, and when they were about a quarter of a mile from it, the bear plunged into the sea, and swimming to the shore, soon disappeared. A few minutes afterwards, the ice ran aground upon a beach, and the few animals still upon it hurried away in the darkness. The colonists, disembarked and falling on their knees, returned thanks to God for their miraculous deliverance. End of chapter 23